0: Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, retired cop and debut author Mark Bergen steps into the interrogation room to answer a few questions. Prior to becoming a cop, Mark was an award-winning crime writer for the Alexandria Virginia Gazette, Mark became a decorated cop, earning two Officer of the Year awards during his nearly 30-year career. Among others, Kirkus Reviews recently acclaimed his writing as an authentic voice in police fiction. The life of being a cop brought Mark into close contact with the difficult and often overlooked issue of suicide among American cops. Currently, more police officers are lost to suicide than to assaults and injuries in the line of duty. Bergen's current debut novel, which is entitled Apprehension, brings awareness to this issue, and Mark plans to donate a portion of those sales directly to the National Police Suicide Foundation and similar programs. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Mark. It's always great to talk with another cop. Thanks, Gavin. This is going to be fun. <laughs> I hope so, man. Hey, so I just started reading Apprehension, and it grabs the reader right from page one. Uh, for those who are new to, to you and your writing, what do you want them to know about this debut effort? Um, I tried very hard to write a book that a cop can read
1: and say, yeah, that's how it happens. That's what it's like. And I also can imagine a cop giving it to his family saying, Hey, this is what we go through. I've always, I I wanted it to be true. I wanted it to be real. I didn't want any of my former partners to say you just made that stuff up. That couldn't possibly happen. So it isn't dirty Harry. It's not so much of a thriller. It's a pretty straightforward police procedural.
0: You know, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, as a cop, right, we, we all have those uh, uh, the, the little pet peeves about the way cops are portrayed, you know, and whether it's in TV or in books. And I, I expect you've probably got your own list of, I guess, Piccadilly's little things that really get your your guy up. What are what are some of those things that you see that you wish people would get right? Um, weapons handling. Every, <laughs>
1: every cop Every private investigator in the world jumps out of the car, pulls their pistol, and racks the slide, which means they have been carrying an unloaded weapon all this time. Mm-hmm. Certainly much more on TV than in books. Um, I think that very, very few writers get the, the mundane, the bureaucratic details right mm-hmm. in stories. I mean, they're not often very exciting. I was able to bring some into my book because my book's about pressure and stress. I'm putting my cop mm-hmm. through ever hotter hell for about four days in this story. Yeah, you
0: know, this this book does deal with a, a very dark, personal, and and pretty misunderstood topic. How how did this story idea come about?
1: It's about suicide. It's about stress leading to suicide. Mm-hmm. In my 28 years on the Alexandria Police Department, I lost one fellow officer to hostile gunfire. And during that same time, three officers killed themselves. And in that same period, two sheriff's deputies in my city were victims of suicide. So that's five to one. Wow. That's that's a higher percentage than normal. But yes, typically maybe every year twice as many law enforcement take their own lives as are killed. As of yesterday, there have been 66 line-of-duty deaths in the United States and 104 confirmed suicides, and that's been going on for quite a while. Uh, I had officers who worked for me and with me who were victims of suicide. I've always wanted to write a book. I actually started writing this book maybe 30 years ago, I wrote about three pages of notes and set them aside. And then five years ago, I had two heart attacks and couldn't wow. come back from them. I was—I had to retire. I'm, I'm great now. I'm healthy. But my doctor and the city doctor said, you can't stay a cop anymore. I needed something to do. So I pulled out the notes and started filling in the blanks. When I'd originally started with these notes, I had a beginning, a middle, an end, and nothing in between. And the theme of the book was going to be police race relations. This is long before Ferguson. This is long before any major nationwide attention to the issue. But it's always been a problem. Mm. I was a member of a drug unit that operated primarily in the black neighborhoods in Alexandria because that's primarily where the street corner drug sales were. And I wanted to write a book about what it was like to be a bunch of white cops really doing very little but arresting young black men. And, um, I had some ideas for that, but then I had the heart attacks. And as I was moving through the medical system, when, when you go from floor to floor or hospital to hospital, like I did, they always ask you, you know why you are here? <laughs> and they're, they're evaluating your understanding of what happened to you. And I would say, I had a hundred percent blockage of the LAD. That's the main coronary artery and their eyes, doctors and nurses, all of them would get real wide and say, that's the Widowmaker. I learned the term the Widowmaker. It's a condition they don't typically find in living people. So (laughs) I I had this one nurse. I was getting picked into Conterra Norfolk General Hospital for the open heart surgery that I had. She asked me. And when I tell her, she Mm -hmm. puts her hand on my shoulder and said, you're not supposed to be here. God's got something more for you to do. And while I don't necessarily believe that, it got me thinking. And then when I started writing Mm -hmm. and looking at what I could do with writing, I decided that, you know, I'm not in this for money. Money's nice. But if I can use this to help somebody else, that would be pretty cool. So I decided to shift the theme of the book. There's still some, some racial issues in the book because it's still very much out there in law enforcement. But I started shifting it to the stresses on cops. And I started really piling the pressure Mm -hmm. on my hero and it kind of takes him to the brink and I won't go too much. I don't want to give away the ending, but I decided to give a percentage of my uh, profits from the book to law enforcement officer anti-suicide programs. That percentage has risen to about 50%. Mm -hmm. I think I'm pretty comfortable with that. Might only be 10 or $15 at the end of the year, but um, I had an opportunity <laughs> yes. to meet uh, yeah. Dr. Robert Douglas of the National Police Suicide Foundation. He was giving uh, a law enforcement seminar in Baltimore, which I was able to attend even though I was, re- was retired and I learned a lot. But he does two things his group teaches police departments how to help their officers, how to recognize when officers are under very mm-hmm. stressful situations, what to do about it. And he also operates a no-tell hotline, a helpline that cops can call without the helpline informing their department. That's something that prevents officers from seeking help sometimes. Absolutely. So um, I think he's doing good work, and I hope I can help him
0: do it. That was one of the things um, very early in my career. I'd been on about um, in about two years um, and went to... Uh, got sent to a DEA narcotics school and one of the, one of the speakers and he was only there, I think for half a day, uh, seems right. But it was uh, Dr. Kevin Gilmartin. Oh
1: yes. I've heard him.
0: And yeah, absolutely phenomenal work. Um, but it was, uh, it was amazing that I, we, you know, we were talking in the green room earlier about how, you know, I've got a few years of my family memory missing that I, all I was doing was cop. Yeah. I, I didn't realize how quickly and how bad, Um, you, how badly you become obsessed with this job, um, and to the, to the detriment of everything else. And, uh, the job can never love you back and all of the emotion, all the energy that you put into it, um, is never, ever returned. And I think for, for a lot of guys, when they have that realization, it's truly heartbreaking and for some really earth shattering.
1: If if I could, Gavin, I've got the phone number for uh, the foundation. It is, uh toll free one eight six six two seven six four six one five. 276 4615
0: Again, 866-276-4615. Fantastic. I appreciate you getting that uh, getting that for us. Thank Mark. you. Um, now, Ken, uh, do you mind, uh, all of the information that's available for you on open source is, is a little bit vague. Do you, do you mind giving us kind of a reader's digest rundown of your career, realizing you, know, you may not want to get into some specifics? Sure. Uh, I started as a child. No, um, I, <laughs> I was up and just got bigger.
1: <laughs> I had been a newspaper reporter for four years in suburban Philadelphia, near where I grew up, and then two years in Alexandria, Virginia, covering cops and courts. Uh, growing up, I had a bit of a different image of police. They were either the little township cops that used to write me speeding tickets and really didn't do much else because mm-hmm. there was nothing else going on, or they were the big city cops in Philadelphia, in New York, in the 70s. -hmm. Um, Although I'd always been interested in police work, um, since I didn't see myself as brutal, corrupt, or racist, I didn't think I could be a cop. That's a a horrible generalization, but that's what cops were, at least the cops that that I could see. They did all the normal cop things, but Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of graft. There was a lot of brutality. And, silly me, I, I sort of thought that was an inherent part of the job. Then I grew up. Then I became a reporter and got to know cops personally, got to ride along, got to sit next to them during trials and see how excited they were to, to testify, to put guys away. I mm-hmm. thought, wow, I may, maybe I can do that. So I applied, was hired by the Alexandria, Virginia Police Department in 1986. Did a year in patrol, did two years in uh, the technical unit, which was our street corner drug unit. that We called the jump out boys. Went back to patrol for a year, became a field training officer, um, went to the community support section. I was a neighborhood cop for a long time, for about eight years. Came out of that, tried to get, eventually got promoted to sergeant, eventually got promoted to lieutenant. Uh, worked all three shifts. Uh, I was on the street for about 27 years. Then I was given command of our information services unit, which was mm-hmm. records. I also ended up in charge of the public information office. So I was our spokesman. That's what gave you the heart attacks right there. I, 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 I joke, but it's true. <laughs> I was fine on the street, When I got behind a desk and had to work with computers and paper and procedures, I suddenly had two heart attacks. I was on vacation. We have a beach house in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. and I was sitting out on the deck and woke up flat on my back. I spilled my my coffee all over myself. No pain, no shortness of breath, no radiating arm problem, no
0: no heart attacks. None of the typical signs. Went
1: and told my wife. She said, you fainted. You're dehydrated. You've been on vacation for a week, drinking nothing but beer and coffee. Drink some water. If it happens again, we'll take you to the doctor. I said, okay. Two hours later, I was walking back from the beach and woke up face down. Absolutely no knowledge it was going to happen. Just bam, woke up face down. She drives me to the little clinic and they can't find anything wrong with me. But an ambulance pulls up outside. I say to the nurse, wow, someone's having a worse weekend than me. They say, no, that's for you. You're going to the hospital. (laughs) <laughs> and she put her hand on my shoulder, just like the other one, and said, I'll be praying for you. And I go, uh-oh, <laughs> that's not a good thing. Um, worked through the, yeah, that's worked a through the system, and when I told the doctor I'd spilled my coffee on myself, he said, nobody faints and spills their coffee. You've always got that second to put it down. The theory, since there wasn't a doctor there, they don't really know, but the theory is that my heart stopped twice and that I somehow restarted it when I hit the ground. No history of heart disease, wow. slightly high blood pressure all my life, slightly high cholesterol lately, but nothing that gave me any idea this was happening. Anyway, I ended up with a double bypass. And after that, the doctor said, nope, you got to find something else to do. So here I am. Wow.
0: Well, we're, 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 we're glad to have you. And I'm, I'm exceptionally grateful that you're you're here to tell this story. So I, I think this is an, an incredibly important story, and it's one of the things that um, – you know for me there's a whole lot of aspects of police work and life as a cop that even the civilian family that are so close to me that that know a lot of my personal struggles that they can never really understand it doesn't matter what words i use to explain it the experience won't translate and That's true. um i i fear that the stress of the job and the realities the the weight the burden of the badge and the burden of of administration will never allow people to effectively understand police suicide. And I I hope I'm wrong, but I'm afraid that that's the case. Um,
1: I think that's true. I think that the general public does not understand what police go through. Sort of one of the purposes of the book was to give a little picture of what happens to one cop, maybe Mm-hmm. Uh, it might open up some dialogue within police departments. I'm trying to get people on my department to read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a volunteer with my de- old department's uh, peer counseling, peer debriefing um, yes. unit yep. that can help some of our officers deal with stress. It didn't really exist very well back in my day. We would have um, no. debriefing sessions after a major incident, but there wasn't much follow through. And I wasn't really a big fan of that. Uh, I had to do that a couple of times, and mm-hmm. it didn't it didn't end up being a good experience for me. So it's nice to be back into it.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, in the in my early career, we had, uh, you know, we would debrief like from a tactical or strategic standpoint, um, but we never debriefed the impact of the event. Um, and we eventually got a, a peer support, a couple guys on peer support, um, but mm-hmm. nobody trusted them. It was literally the the couple of guys that you didn't want showing up <laughs> at your scene because you you didn't know how they were going to react. So there's no way I'm going to spill my guts to those two clowns, right? right? At my my last agency, um, thankfully getting getting roped into that peer support unit, and we had a fantastic core group of people who were among our our most experienced and most veteran cops, um, who you know were an ear for the the guys in the department and also an ear for each other. And even as with all of you know, my background in training and peer support, like I, I'm horrible about taking my own <laughs> advice, but when I needed it, it was uh, unbelievably beneficial to, to have somebody to talk to that yes. would understand. Yes.
1: I think that we're as cops, we're not aware or don't think about how much violence we're exposed to on, on, on a constant basis, on a daily basis. Even if, even if it's not our call, we know what's mm-hmm. happening. We read the report, we talk to each other. Yes. I got done with this book and some friends were reading it, and they remarked how horribly violent it was and My first thought was, well, no, it's not it 's just what happened <laughs> it, and and, and yeah. as I look at it now, yeah. uh, yes, it is it maybe not terribly violent, and I don't think inappropriate, mm-hmm. but it shows what we see, what we're exposed to, and I guess the fact that I didn't pay much attention attention to it while writing, it shows how internalized it was
0: mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and I—I don't think I didn't really appreciate um, how stressful and how burdensome the job was until I was off of it about six uh-huh. or eight months. Even just the fact, that, just the simple reality that you have to carry a loaded weapon, at least one loaded weapon, with you every day just to do your job. Like that already is an yes. anomaly, right? But the fact that you know we we routinely drive intentionally. To scenes of violence to bring more violence yep. to that environment and expecting violence to come our way. Um, you know, that's, that is, uh, there's nothing else like it besides warfare. True. True.
1: Certainly warfare is so much, and, you know, it's, war, warfare it's, is certainly so much more severe for the soldiers who are in it, mm-hmm. but yes, fortunately they're not in it every minute. Uh, cop stress maybe much lower level but it's constant it's every day it's driving yes. to work it's it's being at home and looking out the window when you're when you're not working
0: yeah and that was one of the things i i never what i always tried to work uh, different parts of town so that i wouldn't run into my suspects at the grocery store with my wife um that was one of the things i was always perpetually afraid of doing um and I never had any issues like that until I started working narcotics. And when I went into special investigations, uh, I was there about six months and it ended up that we had, uh, one of my trafficking suspects, this guy was moving uh, mountains of weed, uh, back up to Detroit. And it turned out one of the houses, the house he actually lived in, um, uh, where he kept his money, his, uh, his dope house was elsewhere, but, the house where he kept his money, where he spent his nights, laid his head down, was a block and a half from my driveway right. that if you walked outside my door about 18 feet and looked due west, you could see his roof line.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: And, you know, so having to have that conversation with my wife, like, hey, this is what this guy looks like. This is what's going on. If he drives by the house, if somebody like this rings the doorbell, don't answer the door. Like, you know, um, I, I I wouldn't go mow my lawn or trim my trees without having a concealed weapon on. Yep. You know, which, you know, is, is irrational, except it's not.
1: Well, something that was kind of sad for me. Yeah. It took me a while to realize I was out and start relaxing with that. But once I did, Mm -hmm. um, my family talked with me more about what they'd been experiencing. I think all of us were trying to shield each other from worry so I almost yes. never talked about my job with my kids. I, I, I would share the fun calls I, with <laughs> yeah. my wife. I would talk about the challenging ones, but I only found out after I retired how much they worried. I mean, I knew they worried, but they mm-hmm. never said it. They were trying to protect me from feeling bad about their worry. And I should have paid more attention, which is what I had. Yes. But yep. <laughs> we're all a lot calmer and happier now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There was, um, my, after I got in our, or the, the peer support group, um, my wife actually agreed to come in and, and talk about an incident. One of, uh, while I was, uh, working dope and SWAT, my, one of my, uh, partners was murdered. Um, our, our negotiator on a SWAT team was, uh, uh, murdered on a traffic stop. Um, and it happened about one 15 in the morning. So, you know, I was, uh, working a day shift at the time. So my, my you know, the, the call out phone goes off and, you know, wakes up, you know, the whole house. Um, but by the time that I'm out the door, like it never even, I left going the information I had at the time I left the house going to pursue this, uh, a potential second, uh, escaped suspect from that killing who had already killed one cop, put another one in the wow. hospital and, I left my wife in the house with the knowledge of where I was going and what we were going to do. And she and I never talked about that for Uh years. Um, And I didn't realize it didn't even occur to me at the time, the burden that my job put on her, but it also, you know, she, I think was very afraid to talk to me about uh, very much what you said that, you know, we're protecting each other. Um, and it was six years, seven years, before we really spoke to anyone about it, and 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 tried to let other folks not live uh, our example. Um, but it's it's uh yeah, it really is burdensome, and you don't realize it. Until it's a different it's done, kind of world.
1: Uh, you ever watch auto racing? You ever watch NASCAR? And before the race, you see the yes. drivers standing there with their wives and kids, who will sit and watch you race for 500 miles? Can you imagine being a cop and your wife watching you go up to the bank, <laughs> go to the burglary, go to the shots fired? Oh, my
0: God. My, my wife came on one ride along, and uh, we agreed that that was enough because uh, she didn't want me to make traffic stops. Um, and uh, my mom wanted to come on a ride along, and we all agreed that was a really <laughs> bad idea. It it seems like you know a lot of fun, and a lot of interesting when you know it's just going to be like a TV show, you know, where nothing really bad happens on the TV shows. There's some violence, but nothing really bad happens on the TV show. Cops, right? Well, so it yeah. must be like that. Right. And
1: you know, my wife not, had a pretty good idea what I did. I mean, we met when I was a cop. She was a public defender.
0: She and I, had, she and I had cases oh, wow. together
1: until uh, until we started dating. <laughs> and She had to duck my cases.
0: Yes. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard for you yeah. to duck hers. <laughs> Now, beyond the beyond the topic of, of police suicide and um, talking about some of the, the, the administrative realities, um, how have other elements of your cop work found their way into your writing and oh, into gosh. the story? Um, almost everything that's in the book
1: could have happened. Uh, a lot of it did. Mm-hmm. Um, the bad things, not so much, but they're certainly within the realm of possibility. I uh, I didn't do... You mentioned earlier Joseph Wamba, and he's famous for having taken notes all his life and then had all of this trove of material Mm -hmm. for his books. I just started trying to remember things that I did. I knew where I wanted the story to go. I knew how I wanted things to impact the officers I'm writing about. In addition to Kelly, I've got patrol officers. I've got a field training officer and his recruit. I've got two narcs. I've got a bad guy. I've got a, a female public defender who was the love interest. Mm-hmm. And, and I just tried to Perfect. go back through my career and remember things that I did or saw and think of whether they could slot into the parallel stories of all these characters who come together at the end, the, the trouble with, in, in a police pursuit, the, uh, the, 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 the bureaucracy of taking drugs to the lab, which sounds really dull until you're carrying – you have to sign for 45 <laughs> yes. separate envelopes of um, a greenish-brown leafy substance, which could be marijuana or it could be PCP, and we yes. always described it the same way because you never really know what it's going to look like when it comes out of the envelope. But the, the, the yes. drudgery sometimes, and the, the, mm-hmm. the, it explodes into violence and fear, but sometimes fun. I mean, it, it was a fun job. There's no question that a was got fun.
0: Yeah, it is. It is truly the, uh, the only thing I've ever been addicted to, yeah. um, is, uh, is cop work. And, you know, it's, it's, you'll, you'll always miss that part of it, no matter how much you enjoy, um, not having to go into the the shop every day. One of the things that I, I really wanted to get your feedback on too, from my, my initial reading of, of apprehension, uh, was to get your point of view on point of view, um, from what I've read so far, um, everything that I've read rather has been in, in, in third person, and I wondered if that was a conscious decision on your part, because um, I, I think the topic is so so personal and so difficult that I, I think if you'd written this in first person, it would almost be too much for 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 readers. Did the characters dictate that point of view, or is that something you you did intentionally?
1: I knew I was going to have multiple characters, and I didn't know how to involve their stories. If I ran it from Kelly's first person point of view, uh, mm-hmm. I also, it, it's a mystery. It's a police procedural, but it's a mystery. It's not exactly a murder mystery. There's something bad that Kelly did last year, and it's about to mm-hmm. come out. And when he learns that, he has to ignore what is going to be for him, doom. He could lose his career. He could go to prison for what happened. But he's got to continue this week getting ready for a trial. He's trying to save a kid from his father who's a pedophile. He's got to take him, take the father to to trial. And he has to ignore the bad thing that happened. Now, unfortunately, the the pedophile's attorney is Kelly's girlfriend, Rachel. And Rachel's got a way to win the case. (laughs) But it's going to hurt Kelly. And he has to ignore Mm -hmm. it. But. To, to ask the question, I wanted to get lots of people involved in the story. I wanted to have lots of different stories to tell, and I, I needed, so I needed them all to be in third person. Each chapter looks at a different character. I mean, Kelly, Kelly, and then the narks, and then a patrol officer, and then back to Kelly. Kelly's the main point of the story, but but a lot of people mm-hmm. are around him, just like police work. We got a lot going on.
0: Now, I wonder how, how you chose to deal with uh, with OPSEC in, in your writing and keeping the uh, important strategies and, and topics that cops who are still going downrange are, are using out of the public space. Um, I, I worked hard not to
1: include anything that would benefit bad guys. There's one part in there. I think I was a little clumsy in it, but there's a there's a sexual assault early on in the story And there's a substance that's used to mask uh, DNA. I don't mention what that that substance is. Uh, Everybody who's read it says, oh, you're talking about X. I said, okay, I didn't really know know everybody knew that. But there are are other things that police do on a traffic stop, on approaching a suspicious person or a Mm -hmm. building that might be in uh, danger. The cops just do, but I don't want to write those details because you know crooks don't read. But somebody might read it. <laughs> yes, somebody might read it to yeah. them, and I don't want to give them any uh,
0: any tips. I've heard somewhere, and it's it's a recurring theme on on this show um, that it only takes about a, a decade of consistent blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success, and I, I think that that really does apply pretty heavily to a lot of the writing and publishing industry and and, and to musicians. Um, you've talked a, a lot about your, your past experience, but I, I, wonder what, once you decided to deliberately intentionally sit down and start writing, um, what was that process, uh, like for you? Did you reach out to mentors? Did you have to do some, some research? What was that journey like up to today?
1: I wished I'd known how many mentors there are
0: because they would have helped
1: me. I wish I'd known the one thing I wish I'd known before I start writing was to go to conferences. When I started writing, it was because I knew as a newly retired officer, I had to have something to do. I'd been planning for it. I, I got to 28 years on the, on the job. I was looking at 30, and everybody told me, you can't just walk out the door and do nothing. You can't just play golf. You've got to have something to occupy yourself. When I knew I was going, I decided to write the book. I'd always wanted to write. I'd always been a big, big reader. And like I mentioned before, about 30 years ago, I was having a tough time. And for some reason, just thinking about writing was a benefit to me. I wrote about three pages of notes, and I still have them. They're up on my bulletin board in front of me, that became this story. A little bit out of order, but some things a cop would go through, some things that could happen to a cop, um, the ending that I wanted. So, yeah, I wrote the book with the ending in mind. but uh when I find I didn't write a word until I until the day after I actually retired, March 19th, wow. uh, 2014, about five months after the heart attacks and it took me a year to write the book. I wrote an extensive chapter outline. I, I knew the things I wanted to say, so I had my beginning. How do I get from the beginning to the middle? What steps would? Detective Kelly go through what steps would his girlfriend, the public defender, go through? What's she doing in the meantime? Because she's not just Kelly's girlfriend; she's got other things happening in her life. What what could involve her within the public defender system? So I just began in putting the pieces together. I had a, about a thirty-two chapter outline, with a, each chapter about a certain character. What I wanted to ha- what I wanted the character to do in that chapter, and also during this entire process, I'm taking notes. I'm writing down, let's you know, the pursuit into DC, the burglary where the guy jumped off the roof, all the other events in my life that I might slot in here, mm-hmm. and I would go back through those notes and say, okay, that will fit with these cops here in chapter 16, and I'd write that note there and come back and flesh it out. It took me a year took me a full year to write it, and I thought I was all done. Um, it took me another mm-hmm. year to rewrite it. And while I was rewriting it, I reached out to a local author um, in the military thriller genre, who I learned lived in Alexandria. His name's Tom Young. And the best piece of advice he gave me, and I wish I'd had it before, was go to conferences. Go and meet other writers. Just talk to them. But I was thinking, <laughs> I already know how to write. What am I going (laughs) to learn? Uh, I went to a conference called Thriller Fest, put on by the International Thriller Writers. And I learned so much. It it didn't – I didn't go back and change – actually, I did. What I learned there, in addition to the craft they teach, how to flesh out characters, how to write a more compelling gunfight or whatever whatever kind of scene – was the importance of really hitting hard at the beginning. How terribly important the first chapter, the first page, the first sentence are. My book had been kind of slow going in. So I rewrote it. I took what had been the nightmare event from Kelly's past that in my initial book was kind of in the middle. We're building up to it. We know something's wrong with Kelly, and then we learn why. I decided to start with that Mm -hmm. because everybody who'd read it said, that's your best chapter. That's your hardest hitting chapter. So that's now a, a a prologue. That's the first chapter occurs a year before the main part of the action. So, and the other thing that I got out of thriller fest was I met a local author here who has drawn me into the local writing crowd. So I get to hang out with other Mm -hmm. authors a lot of these guys will, will, will share information. They'll sit down and say, hey, I'm having trouble with this in a plot. I don't like to do that. But it's it's exciting to me to just hear what they're working on, um, see how they progress, see their different styles, yes. s- steal them when I can, but, but not
0: too much. I'll,
1: I'll, I'll, do that. Yes. I'll do that more with the next <laughs> books because I've got Thanks. a number of books that I plan for these characters. This will be a series.
0: Now, beyond writing and Kitty Hawk and and your family, what what are you passionate about? And what what gets you out of bed in the morning and moving with a purpose these days?
1: (laughs) Walking the dog. (laughs) Lately, what's been firing me is the amount of business that goes into book writing, trying to promote, trying to reach out, using social media to try and increase the awareness of the book coming out. But yeah, I'm doing a lot to write the next book. The first book, Apprehension, takes place in 1988 for a number of reasons. One, it's when I, when I first envisioned the story. So a lot of it is is time sensitive to that area. There's an important law that is crucial in the storytelling The change the next year. And the coming of that change figures in the novel. So I had to set it before the book changed. Again, I wanted it to be very realistic. Yes. And if anybody had had cell phones in my story, none of the problems would have happened. They all would have been able to call each other and work things out, and there would have been no drama. So I had to set it before cell phones. The next, <laughs> book, the next book is going to bring my characters up to just after 9-11. Wow. Now, we're in Alexandria, Virginia, and 9-11 didn't affect us directly. But all cops everywhere, all across America, we changed everything we did because mm-hmm. of that. Yes. There was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of change. I remember we went to a 12-hour shift, and a lot of us were working more. I remember working a night shift maybe two days after the event. And we're only five miles from the Pentagon. But I didn't think about it till I was driving through a neighborhood, windows down, and I smell a house fire. You know what a house a house fire has a, has a yeah. distinctive smell. Yep. And I called communication and I said, is fire working anything? I'm in Park Fairfax neighborhood. Uh, no, we don't have anything going. And I finally figured out what I was smelling was the Pentagon. Wow. So I'm going to set it there because I want my characters to have grown to that certain point. I want that as a backdrop for the events of the story. Uh, The next story is going to talk about faith. This book was about stress. The next book's about faith and religion are going to be kind of the backdrop of the story. Uh, My hero is going to survive a shooting that should have killed him. And there's really no way he could have survived other than, as some of his friends think, the hand of God saved him.
0: Mm -hmm. He has a a purpose for being there.
1: He starts to wonder. He starts to think about that. He's a lapsed Catholic. He doesn't really pay a lot of attention to religion. But with everybody thinking that about him, he starts looking into it more. Um, He's Catholic. His wife is Jewish. Jewish. So there's a there's another perspective on there. I have mm-hmm. characters who are Hindi and Sikh. Um I have a Muslim character. And I'm just gonna bring in some of the different perspectives on on predestination, on whether whether God is active in controlling what we do. I, I haven't worked all those details out. This this one's not quite as linear as as the first. But it it's still gonna be a police procedural. There's still gonna be shootouts and chases and bad guys and all the other good cop stuff.
0: Now with uh most everyone else that I talk to, um almost all other other authors are also pretty ferocious readers. And I wonder who your favorite fictional detective or investigator is right now.
1: Oh wow. Bruce Coffin
0: in mm-hmm. Maine
1: writes yep. Oh God. what's his character's name? I'm blanking
0: on it. I'm uh, uh, looking at a copy of Beyond the Truth right now. Uh, Detective John Byron.
1: John Byron, yeah. I like him a lot because he gets the police details right. Yes. Um, there's another main writer named uh, Brenda Buchanan who writes mysteries that involve uh, newspaper reporters, or at least the, the the one that I read had a reporter, and she got that right. Uh, I like Don Winslow. Yes. Who, who's writing much, much larger scope stories, international yes. drug trade.
0: Yeah, with the, the cartel and the force, and uh was the one that just came out,
1: uh, The Border. Yes. Yeah, I haven't read that yet. Um, I go back and reread. When, when I decided I was going to uh, to write, I went back and reread all of my favorite authors, mm-hmm. um, John D. MacDonald, uh, Jack Hunter, Tony Hillerman. Alistair McLean mm. happens to be my favorite writer, but I'll never write like him. He's international uh, suspense and thrillers. Uh, yeah, I deliberately didn't read jo- Joseph Wamba, because I knew my books were going to be very similar to his, and didn't want to be quite so uh, influenced by
0: his style. Keeping all of all that last answer in mind, uh, Mark, I, I ask this last question of of all authors who come on the show, mostly because it's fun for me. <laughs> um, but God forbid it should come to pass. But if you were to wake up tomorrow and find that you've been murdered. What fictional investigator, assassin, <laughs> or revenge artist would you want assigned to your case? Harry Bosch. <laughs> Perfect. That was really quick. It was like you had that one queued up. <laughs> and, and,
1: and I didn't. I didn't. He, didn't. he didn't. <laughs> um, Michael Connelly has always been a very, very impressive writer. And yes. he builds so much suspense within the realistic police procedural genre. When I was trying, and it took me a long time to get published, trying to get agents, so many of them mm-hmm. would say to me, "Nobody's buying police procedurals." And I'm thinking, "Look at Michael
0: Connelly. <laughs>
1: maybe, yeah. maybe they're all, just yeah. buying." I products. disagree, but yeah, great book. Yeah,
0: Bosch is almost he's uh, almost the combination of it's uh, like a Sherlock Holmes and a Mitch Rapp all in the <laughs> one. You know, so yeah. Yeah, you have both benefits. Where can readers connect with you, find your works, uh, maybe get updates, a newsletter, and stay in contact with you?
1: Um, Yeah, uh, my website is markbergenwriter.com. If they go there now, they'll find the last thing I put on it was a couple of years ago, but I'm I'm trying to reactivate that. I've been spending too much time writing the book as opposed to writing uh, the blog. I'm on Facebook, uh, and I found out. Today, finally, my upcoming book hit Amazon, so it's there, and there'll be a writer page as soon as they clear my photo and my bio, and that'll have some information on how to contact me. My email should be in the book. My email is going to be bergenwriter at gmail.com. That's bergen b e r g i n writer at gmail, and uh, i I hope I hope I get swamped with uh, responses. <laughs> yes.
0: Well, I, I greatly appreciate you making time to, to come on the show and talk to us about your craft and your experience, Mark. Uh, this is an incredibly important book, and I, I really do hope that um, you and the topic are met with all the success it deserves. Gavin, you're very kind. Thank you very much for taking your time. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been veteran cop and debut author Mark Bergen. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.